Today's scripture passage is from Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And if you want to read along and don't have a Bible, you can find this on page 578 in the Bibles before you. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And this is God's word. There's a correlation between how close we follow Jesus and how large our sin seems to be to us. As my faith has deepened over the years, as, as my faith and trust in Jesus Christ has deepened and matured over the years, my dependency on him has, has not lessened. It's only increased. I actually see myself as a bigger sinner now than I did 20 years ago. It's not, it's not necessarily that I sin more or that I sin in more heinous ways. I'm actually more well-behaved than I was when I was young. Just ask Becky. I'm, I'm more well-behaved. But that's not, that's not what I'm talking about. What I mean is the more I follow Jesus, my eyes begin to open wider so that I can see more fully and more accurately the cunning nature of sin within me, okay? I can see more clearly the depths of my sin, how I offend my creator and how I offend the people around me. So I can agree with the ex-slave trader John Newton's words. Now, we just sang his song, Amazing Grace. And I can agree with John Newton's words who said, I was a great sinner, but Jesus is a great savior. And I actually repeat those words in my mind. I say those words to myself pretty much every time I have to get ready to preach God's word. I probably said it to myself about 10 or 15 minutes ago. Great sin requires a great savior. In this passage, Mark offers us a metaphor describing sin as, as an inerrant spiritual sickness within us. So today I want to talk about the sickness of Jesus' friends and the sickness of his opponents, his adversaries. I even want to talk about the sickness within Jesus himself. His friends had a sickness. His enemies had a sickness. And I also want to talk about the sickness within Jesus himself. The sickness of Jesus' friends and his disciples, the people who were following him, 
was what I want to call license. And what I mean by license is immorality, immoral living, greedy people, people who are hungry for money and were willing to do what they had to do to get it, people who are known for their promiscuous and broken sexual behavior and reputations, people who were heavy drinkers, people who were big party animals, people who would indulge in the sensual and carnal aspects of living in order to drown out the pain and the hurt from living in a broken world. These were people, the Bible tells us, who followed Jesus. And it's remarkable that that type of a crowd would be drawn to him. I think what's more remarkable, though, is that Jesus is drawn to them. You notice, he's pursuing them. He's pursuing Levi, the tax collector in this passage. Levi, also known as Matthew in the Gospels, is one of these people. Now, if it, it should have surprised you that the first disciples Jesus called were, were just blue-collar watermen, right? It should shock you that Jesus now calls to be one of his disciples a tax collector. How do you feel about the IRS? Okay, take that feeling multiply it many times, and you'll get an idea of how a good Jew living in the first century would feel about a, tax, a Jewish tax collector. If you were a good Jew living at this time, uh, you would have thought that somebody like Levi was an unpatriotic Jew because a Jewish tax collector was basically taking money from his fellow Jewish countrymen and then handing that money over to the Roman oppressors. And in this case, probably Herod, um, which one? Uh, not not uh, Herod the Tetrarch, Antipas. Herod Antipas, who was a criminal and a crook, the Jews thought. Right? So here's a countryman of theirs taking their money and giving it off to their oppressors. So he was highly unpatriotic. Okay? He was also greedy. You would have thought tax collectors were greedy son of a guns because what they would do is on top of the required tax that the authorities required of you as a citizen of the Roman Empire or under, under Herod's province, under his reign, a Jewish tax collector would then add a gratuitous, a gratuitous fee on top of the required tax so as to profit from that. And so in a bustling town like, this, like Capernaum, the bustling market of the Sea of Galilee, Okay, a tax collector probably did very well, right? Every time you caught a fish and brought it out of the sea, right? And that's where Jesus finds this man. He's at a tax booth right by the Sea of Galilee. Not only was he probably unpatriotic and greedy, but he was ceremonially unclean. So what the, what, the, what the rabbinical Jewish tradition said about somebody like a tax collector was that because of his lifestyle, because of what he was doing, he was ceremonially unclean. You couldn't touch him. You couldn't eat over at his house. He was unclean. His family was ceremonially unclean. And so were you if you went into his house. Tax collectors, Jewish tax collectors were excommunicated from the synagogues. They could not serve as witnesses in a court situation. Society just viewed them as untrustworthy. So here's, here's Levi, an unpatriotic, greedy, ceremonially, ceremonially unclean Jew, 
and Jesus invites him into ministry. And when we were starting this church, we prayed and looked for talented, smart, funny, creative people to be a part of our team. And you know, some of them, some of them joined us and, and you're here today. And some of them didn't join us. They said, no, we're not interested. It was heartbreaking. I can't imagine saying, I'm going to look for the most disreputable person I could possibly find and ask them to partner with me in starting a new church. I, I, it never even crossed my mind. Okay? And here's Jesus, the Son of God, saying, you're the kind of person I want to work with. And through Levi and 11 other guys, Jesus changed the world. So to take it one step further, not only does Jesus invite Levi into ministry, he goes to his house. Luke's gospel gives us more detail. Luke's gospel tells us that Levi held a great feast for Jesus. So Jesus goes to his house to have dinner, to have a party. If you're a tax collector, who's coming to your party? Other tax collectors. Other tax collectors are going to show up at your party. Yeah. And the Bible tells us not only tax collectors, but quote-unquote sinners were there. And in verse 15, we discover that many of these people, tax collectors and sinners, were following Jesus. So we see Jesus disregarding the rabbinical religious tradition. He never disregarded the Old Testament wasn't disregarding the Old Testament law at all, but he was regarding the religious tradition of the religious establishment going into this man's house with his friends, with his crowd, and having a meal and relaxing. He seemed to have no problem being with these people. He seemed quite content. He was drawn to them. You know, meals, meals are intimate moments when we share our lives with one another, aren't they? Sometimes you complain when you've been in a church for months or years and nobody's invited you into your house for a meal, right? That's why we, we tell everybody, hey, come over our house and, and, and have a meal. You know, we don't do it every Sunday, but we do it quite often. We encourage all of you, you know, invite each other over for, for food. Take each other out. If there's a new person, grab them and take them to Panera because it's, it's, over the, it's in a meal that we share life together. We get to know each other and we build authentic, transparent community that way. So Jesus is eating with people who are ceremonially unclean, who had a spiritual sickness and that sickness was manifest in their immoral living, in license, a life of license. Now, let me ask you a question. Who in our society display the spiritual sickness of license, of immorality? What do you think? License, spiritual immorality, the idea that... I can do what I want with my body, with someone else's body. I can live the way I want. It doesn't matter. I'll just do what I want. I'll, I'll drown the pain with, with drinking or with sex or uh, people who have that type of a reputation. That's what I mean by license. What else? Yeah, in the back. You. <laughs> There's an honest man. Yeah. Yeah. Stereotypically, though. So, we, so professing Christians, 
experience this sense of immoral living, having license. Yeah. <laughs> Not the ones in this room. The idea of, of being young and going away and just experimenting with life and what the world has to offer. Yeah, a lot of, a, a lot of young adults, they, they have that freedom and they go, wow, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live it up because I can, because I'm on my own now. Somebody over there had a hand up? Somebody over here? Somebody else had a hand up? No? Yeah. Okay, well, wealthy decadence. I have, I have the means, so I will do whatever I want. Right over here. Hmm. Politicians came to mind. Yeah. That, that, is, that is a stereotype, but it's, it's based on some truth, isn't it, from, from our observation. Yeah, and, and I'm sure you're thinking of more, and, and the list can go on. Um, how about one more right here? I haven't heard from you. Maybe, it, maybe, maybe from an atheistic point of view, uh, there is no power, there is no authority, I can, I can live the way I want. And I will say, now I'm not an atheist, but I will say that is a very consistent worldview. If there is no creator and there's no God, you can do what you want. That is the most consistent worldview, I think, outside of Christianity. Yeah. Um, so, so there are all sorts of ideas in our minds about people whether it's an individual in your life or yourself or groups of people in our society today who, who, who really uh, give us this picture of, of moral license. I'm doing whatever I want with my life and with my body and with the people around me, either because there is no God or there is a God, but he hates my guts because of the wicked person that I am. So I'm just going to give myself over to that behavior because it doesn't matter anyway, he'll reject me. What, what is it? You, you know what you, f you feel like when somebody just doesn't like you, you go, well, forget it. I'm gonna do whatever I want because I'll never please them anyway, right? That's, that's, that's a real situation in our lives. Now, let's not stop there because there are other people in this account who are also spiritually sick, right? There are Jesus's opponents and we need to talk about them because there's a spiritual sickness to the scribes and to the Pharisees, and it's legalism. It's moral pride. I'm not talking about license, moral license anymore. Now I'm talking about moral legalism. In chapter 2, enter the scribes and the Pharisees. This is the religious establishment of first century Israel. The scribes were law experts of the ancient Old Testament Torah. The scribes were known as being experts in knowing and understanding the biblical law, but also the traditional law, okay? The, the, the traditions passed down uh, by the rabbis over the centuries that were not in the Bible, and yet they, they, treated, they treated those traditions as though they were uh, God's word itself. So the scribes were experts in the law. The Pharisees were experts at keeping the law. The Pharisees, the word itself meant to be separate. So the Pharisees prided themselves and were regarded in that society as being expert law keepers. They were squeaky clean by appearance and by the way they lived their lives. And earlier in chapter 2, this group of people become very suspicious of Jesus because Jesus heals a man who is paralyzed. You look earlier in the chapter, 
Jesus heals a man who is paralyzed, but he doesn't simply heal the man. He actually declares the man's sins forgiven. And so the religious establishment says, wait a minute, that sounds like blasphemy. Nobody gets to forgive people's sins except God himself. So now they're suspicious, and they're keeping their eye on Jesus. And so you can imagine they are now alarmed to find that Jesus is defiling himself ceremonially by eating with tax collectors and sinners. Who are sinners? If you look in all the gospels, sinners are basically um, described as prostitutes and alcoholics. I'm sure that wasn't the only (laughs) types of people allowed into the sinners club, but when, when you read the gospels and the word sinners come up, it's usually people associated with prostitution, with, with sexual brokenness and deviancy, uh, and big partiers who, who, who abuse substances. That's, that's what Jewish people meant when they said sinners. Now, in verse 17, these guys are really worried about what's going on. And so they say to Jesus' disciples, what is he doing? Why is he eating with these people? This is not good. And Jesus gets wind of it. And he says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is brilliant, and it's profound. And he's really saying two things. The first thing he says is very obvious. Basically saying, I'm here for the unrighteous. I have come for people who know they are sick. I've come for people who know, spiritually speaking, they need a doctor. And I'm here to provide for them and to care for them. The second thing he's saying is much more subtle because it's implied in, his, in, in the words. He's basically saying to the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, if you're so righteous, I guess you don't need me. So further now, Jesus reveals the nature of the kingdom of God. Right? Throughout the Gospel of Mark, we're going to be seeing more and more what the kingdom of God is all about. We talked about the kingdom of God being God's reign, God's authority, God's power come here in the person of Jesus Christ. But now Jesus pulls back the veil even further on the kingdom of God and its nature. And he says, basically, the people who are fit to enter into the kingdom of God are fit to enter, not because they're righteous, but because they know they're not. And the people who are unfit to enter God's kingdom are the people who think they're fit. The people who think they are righteous, they are good enough, those are the ones that will not enter it. Have you ever seen someone, a a physically sick person who's in denial? And what the consequences of that are? You go to the doctor and you say, I I haven't been feeling well for the last month. This is happening and that's happening and and I feel like this. And the doctor looks into it and he goes, I am so glad you came in and told me you have cancer. But we caught it early. You were paying attention to your body. We can take care of this. But you know the person who months and months and months and months ignores the systems, doesn't want to go to a doctor, doesn't want to deal with it, goes to the doctor and finds out, hey, I really wish you had come to me sooner. You have stage four cancer. It's inoperable. It's metastasized all over your body. And there's nothing I can do for you. The scribes and Pharisees manifest a spiritual sickness of moral pride, of legalism, but they're blind to it. See, that's, that's the symptom of moral pride, that you don't know you're prideful. 
I'll ask you a question again. Who in our society displays this? Who in our society displays spiritual sickness of legalism, of moral pride? Speak in generalities now. What do you think? Yeah. Christians. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have to be honest with ourselves. The culture sees us as being morally prideful and legalistic. Yeah. Christians who are upset about red cups at Starbucks. Well, you know, I, I, I knew a, a, a good friend of mine who's a Christian who basically told me he wasn't going to go to Starbucks anymore because he heard that Starbucks as a corporation was, was um, gay-friendly in, in some way. Um, it's not like they're saying we're gay-friendly on their cups, but they made some kind of a political statement, a social statement that offended him, and he said, I'm not doing business at Starbucks anymore. So there is a stereotype of that of the, 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 the religious, uh, moral, self-righteous, legalist type of a person. Yeah. Very interesting. So she says she knows of an atheist. She said an evangelical atheist, meaning he promotes and preaches atheism. Okay. And, and she said, actually, atheists can be just as legalistic as religious people, as theists, as Christians. That's absolutely true. We're all legalistic in some way. There's some law that when people break that law of ours, we just punish them for it and think we're better than them. Yeah. It's in our nature, regardless of what we believe and who we are and where we're from, it's in our nature to be legalistic. It's at the core who we are. To be right. Yeah, to be right. Good. Yeah. I do all these good things. I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a really good person. I'm better than you are because I do good things. Good. One more. <laughs> Touche. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Was that it? Old people are legalistic? <laughs> that was great. Old people are legalistic. Young people are licentious. We can all go home now. There's nothing else to do. Really good. This was great. We could, we could go on, but, but we probably shouldn't. Really good. Now, I want to ask you a question that I'm not going to ask you to answer. Just think about it. Can you find yourself somewhere in this account? Where are you in this room? There's Jesus and his disciples at Levi's house. They're eating a meal. There are scribes and Pharisees there. There are people with shady past, people who are dealing with substance abuse, people who are, are uh, s sexually uh, promiscuous. They're all there. Where are you? Where are you in the room? Are you offending God because, because of license? You know, are, are you offending God because of immorality? Are, are you indulging 
in a lifestyle that offends your creator, that hurts you, that is hurting the people around you? And are you giving yourself up, giving yourself over more and more to that lifestyle because you figure it's too late now. People have rejected me. God's rejected me. I might as well continue in this way of living because, like, what's, what's the point? God would never accept me. So I'm just going to stick with what I know. I'm going to keep putting Band-Aids on the pain. I'm going to keep drowning the hate. Or are you offending God because of your legalism? Are you offensive to God because of your pride? Do you possess a superiority, a, a sense of superiority that separates you from lesser people? Are you proud of yourself? Are you repulsed by people who are not like you? Aren't as good as you, aren't well behaved, don't see the world the way you see it? Are you assuming that God will accept you because you're well behaved? Because you do wonderful things? Because you're really nice? Because you know a lot? Jim Daly is the president of Focus on the Family. He replaced Jim Dobson years ago in Colorado Springs. And, and Jim Daly was talking to us just a couple of months ago at uh, the, the Peacemaker Ministries gathering out there. And uh, Jim Daly says that he's been criticized by his own religious donors for openly meeting with gay activist leaders. Okay. Um, there have been two responses. Jim Daly has, has openly and outwardly met with people who are coming from a very different social, uh, political, religious, philosophical uh, position as he and, and his ministry. Right? And there have been basically two general responses. The first response is from legalistic type people who basically have, without using the word, blackmailed him by calling him and saying, listen, um, I, I really think it taints the office of the president of this ministry for you to be meeting with gay activists. And if you continue to do that, I, I'm going to have to pull my support. I can't keep supporting this ministry if you continue to meet with leaders like that. Um, and then Jim's response to them was, look, I want to be honest with you. I'm going to keep meeting with them. Because if I don't, who else will? Who, who else is going to meet with them to tell them about the truth and to tell them about Jesus if, if I don't? So I'm going to keep meeting with them. There's another response, though, is from the gay activists themselves, right, who would fit into the, in the room that where Jesus and Levi are, and the gay activists would be right there with the sinners, following Jesus, listening to what he had to say, enjoying it feeling drawn to him, okay? One gay activist said to him, what do you pray about? We know, we know, you've publicized this, Jim. You, we know you're praying for us. What do you pray about? Are you praying that we'll, we'll go straight? Is that what you pray for? And he said, you know what? I don't even think about that. I, I just, when I pray for you guys, I just pray that, I just pray that Jesus will fill you with his presence, I just, he goes, we're all marred and gnarled sexually. We're all broken in different ways. And I just pray that you'll meet Jesus like I've met and that he'll fill you. And he said the response that person gave him was tears. 
The person was completely overwhelmed by his response. Any sin, whether it is very large or very small, is enough to separate us from God forever. I don't care how good you think you are. I don't care how evil and wicked and unclean you think someone else is. Any sin, large or small, is great. Is great enough to separate us from God forever. It was the prophet Isaiah who said, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. But there is good news. And this is the good news. That Jesus himself became sick. For those who are sick. And this is an application of the gospel. Of the good news of the kingdom of God. That the one who is truly clean, the only one who is perfectly ceremonial clean, became dirty, became spiritually sick so that sick, spiritually sick people could become well. We quarantine people who have deadly infectious diseases, don't we? Right? I mean, when, with the whole Ebola scare, right? Quarantining these people from society so that they wouldn't infect society. The doctors and medical professionals going in had to be completely covered and protected so as not to get sick themselves. And even then, some of them got sick. But, but Jesus, oh, I should tell you this. I was praying for a woman on Main Street last year. She was a woman with hepatitis. She was very open about it. She had hepatitis. She was once homeless, once a drug addict, and still living in Westminster. And we talked for a while, and then we prayed, and after we prayed, she said, can I give you a hug? And she gave me a big hug, and I gotta be, this is a confession. In my soul, I kind of flinched when, when we hugged each other. I didn't, I didn't like jerk my body, she didn't know, but, but in my heart, I flinched. And that's a confession. But Jesus entered into this world as a righteous, holy, clean person, as God himself, fully unprotected, and he became dirty. He soiled himself with our spiritual sickness. The, Bible, the New Testament literally tells us that Jesus became our sin. That is not hyperbole. That's not an exaggeration. That's theologically accurate, that Jesus Christ on the cross became sin for his people their sin. And it was centuries earlier that the prophet Isaiah, again, speaking about the Messiah who would come, said, by his wounds, we are healed. And so now we can freely and even joyfully acknowledge the greatness of our sin. That's the Christian life. Finally admitting, I am sick. I am so sick that without help, I was going to die. I am so sick that I can even inflict you with my sickness. It's, it's finally saying, I'm not embarrassed and scared of that anymore. I am openly and freely and even joyfully acknowledging I'm a great sinner. And, and, and that, there's nothing great about that. What's great is I have a great Savior. That's what brings joy. That's what brings freedom. 
the Apostle Paul could say it. Paul was an ex-Pharisee. Paul was ceremonially clean and proud of it. But Paul was able to say this to his friend Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Some of your translation says, I was the chief of all sinners. How could Paul, such an admirable guy who wrote half of the New Testament, right? Literally, through Paul's writings and Paul's missionary efforts, the Greco-Roman world was turned upside down. And yet, Paul could say, I am the biggest sinner I know. How was that possible? People were far less behaved than Paul was. It's because Paul knew his own heart. Paul knew his own thoughts. I don't know what's going on in your heart and mind. I know what's going on in mine. So I should be the biggest sinner I know. And Paul could say it because he had a great Savior. Great sin requires a great Savior. You know, the greater Jesus becomes to you, the bigger he gets in your eyes. I, I got to tell you, the bigger his cross will become. Some of you are learning about that in your community groups as you work on the surge material created by Jack Miller. The bigger Jesus becomes, the bigger his cross becomes in your life. And then guess what? The bigger of a sinner you'll start to see you truly are. It's not other people showing you that. I realize what a big sinner I am. But, and here's the good news, the greater your joy and the greater your freedom will be knowing that Jesus pursues you to offer you healing. He pursues you to offer you forgiveness. And we're going to be a church that welcomes sinners. And if you see yourself as a sinner, friend, you are welcome here. And I invite you to discover who Jesus is with us. We're all sinners. And we're not going to make excuses for our sins. And we're not going to make excuses for the sins of the people around us. But we're going to be honest about our sin. And we're going to welcome others. And we're going to sit down and eat with Jesus and draw close to him and draw close to each other. With God's strength, let's be a church that welcomes sinners. And you're welcome here if you are one. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for sending us your Son who dirtied himself so that we could become clean, who contracted the darkest sickness in the universe and became utterly distasteful to you when he hung on a cross so that we could be healed. We praise you that he is alive and the proof of his resurrection is proof that you accepted his sacrifice. And so now we take joy in his sacrifice that brought us healing and that brought us freedom. And in his name, we give thanks and we say that we love you. Amen.